welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Isaac Madsen. Isaac is a soil scientist and native of the Northwest. He served as the extension agronomist for the Washington Oilseed Cropping Systems Project at WSU from September 2019 through August 2022. He first started working with canola in 2012 during his PhD studies at WSU under the guidance of Dr. Bill Pan. Isaac and his family will be moving to Zambia in January of 2023, where he'll be teaching soil science um, at what college was that? African Christian University. The African Christian University. Welcome, Isaac. Thank you, Drew. Um, So for the last several years, you've been running these large-scale canola variety trials. Can you tell us what you've been seeing from harvesting those all these years? Yep. And I, I will say we haven't harvested our spring trials yet this year. Um, but we've harvested our winter trials already. And okay. so one of the, one of the things we've seen consistently over the years with the winter canola varieties is the hybrids uh, perform the open pollinated as you would expect. So there's, there's a lot of both varieties, um, or types grown in Washington state still mostly non GMO, um, hybrid can be non GMO as, as well as, as open pollinated can be non GMO. And so this year we had a really striking example of that in Elmira where our uh, non, our, our hybrid, our top hybrid was 3,100 pounds, um, or right in that neighborhood. And then our open pollinated was closer to 2000 pounds. So uh, about a thousand pound difference, you know, so if you look at canola prices this year, north of 30 cents, you know, some people got some really good contracts, 45 cents in that area, that, that a thousand pounds really starts to add up in, in your gross. Um, so that's kind of the consistent story we've seen in our winter canola uh, over the last several years of doing it. I would say that's kind of uh, par for the course. That was maybe the most extreme difference we've seen is this last year, but um, it was a good good year for production. And I think maybe those differences show up a little more on, on a good year than a, you know, a stressed year when everything is just experiencing sort of equal levels of stress. Okay, hybrid seed, if if my understanding is correct, is more difficult, more expensive to produce. So is the seed more expensive to buy? Yes. Yes. So you're 100% correct there. I think that's why people um, shy away from from hybrids is because it is more expensive. And so you've just got to sit down and add that up for yourself uh, at the start of the year, you know, which makes sense. And I think the difficult thing with canola is we've had so much trouble with establishment and winter survival so you don't want to spend a ton of money putting in a crop that might die, you know, in the next month because of drought or might die in the next two months because of, of you know, winter kill. The farmer I was harvesting with up in Elmira, he said, if we can just get it to March, all you have to do is get your winter canola to March. And if you get it to March, at that point, you're, you're pretty much golden. Um, you're going to make a crop. But getting it to March, there's a lot that can happen between, you know, say you're going to plant mid-August between August 15th and, and, you know, March 15th, there's a lot that can go wrong for a canola stand in that time. 
Okay. But you've consistently seen these hybrids outperform the open pollinate. So it is something people should consider and kind of factor in their costs and their, their, I guess it raises your risk a little bit because you're spending more up front and you might not see that rewarded. But then again, you might. And I think it's also, you know, how are we going to think of canola? Are we going to think of it as just a rotation for wheat or is it going to be a, a crop in its own right? And that's a price, you know, it's a question of price. Yeah, and 45 cents a pound. I think I know the answer to that <laughs> yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't that long ago. We were, you know, 17 cents a pound. Yeah. So, Okay. Um, in previous podcasts, uh, you've mentioned Piola. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your recent progress with Piola research? Yeah. So on Piola, I've been working on that since, I guess, the first harvest was 2020, winter Piola. Um, that's a pea canola intercrop for people who haven't heard the term before. Um, there's a lot of questions when you when you start intercropping. So originally we started working on nitrogen um, and the soils we were in, I think maybe had extra mineralization or something going on because we didn't see any results from uh, adding nitrogen fertilizer in those. And those were all small plots. We harvested our first large strips this year uh, beside our canola study. So that was good. That was zero nitrogen applied um, in those and it overyielded the canola by 25% as far as like gross poundage off the field. But most of that was peas. So it was about 70% peas and 30% canola. And so that's a bit uh, in the current sort of price setup. That's, that's not really a winning situation. So I think really what we need to start thinking about is how do we ratchet up canola um, production and down decrease pea production. And, and the idea is, I think, moving forward would be seeding rates and then actually maybe even though our small plots show no advantage of nitrogen, maybe we do need nitrogen. <laughs> um, and so I think that's where the research should go in the future. Unfortunately, we didn't harvest. We had some seeding rate studies this year up at Davenport and um, they looked great all the way until the deer ate all the peas. So <laughs> so I was talking with another extension uh uh, agent, county agent, who was looking at them with me, and he said, "Yeah, I think we'll get more deer poop out of than peas if we go ahead and <laughs> harvest this." So, so we didn't harvest it, which is a bit of a bummer on a way to leave the project. But I think there's a lot there. I think oh, there's a lot to do to, at the large scale. Um, so, you know, more more grower involvement um, and getting the community surrounding that. I think there's there's a lot of potential for overyielding. We just got to work out some of the problems, and then there's supply chain. You know, on the downside. Um, following harvest, how do we separate this and how fast does it need to be separated and things like that. Okay. You've mentioned overyielding a couple of times. Could you explain what overyielding is? Yeah. So overyielding, the true true way to calculate it would be to grow a monocrop of canola, a monocrop of peas, and then the piola. And then basically you look at the amount of peas that you harvest from the piola relative. Um, so peas and piola divided by monoculture peas and canola and piola divided by monocrop, monocrop canola. And that gives you what's called the land equivalence ratio. And that is a way of quantifying how much you overyield. So we didn't have a P check in the large scale we did uh, just because of our situation in that field. But um, that's in, in my small plot studies, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but it it was somewhere in the range of 1.5. So you can think of that as a 150% increase. Okay. Um, you know, so or not 150% increase, but we were yielding 150% of the monocultures. Um, and so that was really promising for me. And I kind of looked at the literature that's out there 
and really consistently you're getting numbers. That's not, it's maybe on the high end, but it's not an unreasonable. So you're getting from one to 1.25 to 1.75 sort of in the literature. And so we're, we're sort of hitting a number you, you might expect. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential there just if we want to increase our efficiency on a per acre basis. Okay. You know, as I think about some of the work I've done in the past, uh, back in Nebraska with, with legumes, a lot of times you don't see that nitrogen benefit until the following crop. So I wonder if, you know, a little nitrogen in the piola and then it'd be the next crop that will really benefit from, from the nitrogen fixation from the, the legume in there. Yeah. The, the grower that we're doing this with is going to soil test. He put nine, I think it was 90 pounds of N on his winter canola, you know, and that's at whatever a dollar this year, a dollar 50 maybe, depending on how much you're getting it for. Dollar 50 would be crazy, but um, he's he's going to sample in the canola that got that fertilizer and then the unfertilized pea canola mix and see where his nitrogen winds up next spring. Okay. So. Interesting. So um, how does that work? After your departure uh, from WSU, is that work going to continue and who's going to be doing that? So there's going to be some Piola work through the ARS unit, USDA ARS. Um, so Garrett um, is going to be doing some of that work and I'm really excited about that. I think you're interviewing him later today. I think he'll be on a later podcast. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so so that, that'll be that'll be great to hear what he has to say. Um, and I, I really hope they're able to... Um, maintain some of the relationships with the growers and, and build more relationships and keep that running. So um, you've mentioned a couple things, but what do you see as the major challenges to Piola adoption um, moving forward? Yeah. So the main, the main ones are logistics in, in my mind. And then in your field is weed science, you know, there's um, you really limit your herbicides. So you're not going to put any stinger for instance on Piola, <laughs> unless you want to get rid of your peas. <laughs> It'd be a good uh, deer uh, control because they, they, there won't be any peas for the deer to feed on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that you limit most of your broadleafs out of the system. Um, so I think there's work to be done there. And then logistics of you know seed cleaning and processing. Okay. You've, you've been involved with canola here at WSU for about as long as we've been dealing with canola. Uh, how do you see canola production change? How have you seen canola production change over that time? The, my first work with canola was my root videos. I think 2012 was when I started that, the first year of my PhD. And that was a side project, actually. That was not going to be what I wrote my dissertation on. And then through a series of events, that's what I actually ended up writing my dissertation on. So, um, and, and I think I should have looked back at the acreage, but I'm guessing we were about in their 10,000 range. Don't, don't quote me on that, but we were growing far less canola at that point in time than we are now. And I think, you know, last year we were over 110,000 acres. So some pretty massive changes. I think we're also getting better at it, you know, so the probability that you're going to get a crop up and that you're going to get to harvest is increasing as we learn, you know, really how to get it established for spring canola. Um, Spring canola has heat challenges at flowering, but then with winter canola, you know, are we going to get it established? Are we going to survive the winter? I think we're getting incrementally better at those things. You know, a large part of that is genetics. So as there's a as there's more acreage going in, it attracts more um, breeding efforts and more um, industry efforts to to find varieties that, that fit for our particular region. And so I think we've seen a lot of that. Uh, these spring varieties are really improving. You know, when I first 
um, started doing the spring trials at NCC 101S, the um, open pollinated, was was pretty dominant. There was 930 from Cropland was a really dominant one too. Um, but the last few years, the Invigor varieties, they have really some really competitive um, varieties there too. And so it, it's good to see um, the competition and um, more more really competitive varieties coming into our region. It's awesome. I think it's better for the farmers to have that. With that increase, are you seeing increased pest or disease problems? That's some, I know when sunflowers moved into North Dakota, I forget when that was, 70s or 80s, at first there were no problems. And then as the acreage grew and they grew it longer, they, they accumulated some, some pests. Yeah, we're starting to see some, you know, some of the diseases. Uh, we've been, I, I, Jim Davis at U of I found some pretty bad black leg this year down on the Camas Prairie area. Um, that's a major problem in Canada is, is black leg. It can be pretty devastating. Um, thankfully we haven't found any club root and that would be a good one. Everybody be careful. That's not one we want here. Um, and then I would say the flea beetles, this is anecdote, but they, they feel worse to me, um, scouting over the last few years. And that could just be environmental, but it could also be acreage. Um, you know, so flea beetles are, are a complicated one interaction, you know, with the, the temperature, as the plant grows and how fast that insecticide wears the seed treatment wears off. And so that's, that's sort of what's going on there. And, and I would say maybe it's the cool springs that's causing problems, cool springs and then heat up really fast. And then that gives a good opportunity for the flea beetles and, and maybe it's more acres. I know, um, my wife was telling me that on the Facebook page for Palouse Gardeners, there were some people whose um, broccoli or something got all eaten by flea beetles this year. So I don't know, is that more canola acreage or is that just the year that we had? Okay. So uh, take out your Ouija board or your prognosticator cap and uh, tell us what you think uh, the future of oilseed crops look like on, on in eastern Washington. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's all, it's all sort of macroeconomics at, at the end of the day. You know, you, you have to make it work. So, and if the current sort of price climate holds true, I would just continue to see acreage go up over the next few years until we hit some sort of equilibrium um, with with the um, canola. I think there's also renewed interest in bio biofuels investment going on sort of at the national level, the sort of the green energy um, ideas. And so I think we're going to see some investment there in the research side. You know, that's how this whole canola thing got started was biodiesels. And now it's basically, you know, all, all used for food. Um, but so I think we'll see more there. And then, you know, there's efforts to develop alternatives to canola. So Camelina being one of those and, and Pennycrest being another one of those. And so I think that's exciting to see. I think um, those are going to have to find slightly different niches just having watched them in the field, they're, they're just not as far along as canola is. And so I have my opinions about the, the, the right niches for those. I think maybe in some sort of shortened irrigated rotation, just because of some of the seeding depth and timing requirements. But. Okay. What about sunflowers? That's a crop I worked with quite a bit in Western Nebraska. It's, it's a summer crop. So maybe it's a little tougher to fit into this climate zone where we don't get much rain in the summer. Any thoughts on that crop? Yeah, so I've walked a few, a fair number of sunflowers fields here. I think, and and you know way more about sunflowers than me, but my understanding is that our sort of day length or our um, season length here is kind of short, and so that we don't really get up to like the confection or oilseed quality, or maybe it's oilseed. We do more birdseed, and so I think that's just never going to demand 
as good of a price. Yeah, it tends to be the, I think growers grow it either for oil or for confection. And when they can't make either one, then it goes in the bird seed because it's, it's the lower uh, value area. Yes, the season, so oil is the last thing to lay down in the seed. Yes. So if you're, if, you get, if you're constrained on that side, you won't get the oil content. I don't, I don't know how it would affect, maybe not get as large a seed. Although I think in the basin where they irrigate, they grow a, a lot of sunflower for seed and maybe for confection, but... Yeah, I think you you but, know you bring that irrigation yeah, in. You makes completely... a big difference. <laughs> Rain makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, you change things. <laughs> okay, Isaac, I really appreciate you being my guest on these uh, podcasts over the last several years. Uh, we wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors in in uh, Zambia. Hopefully, we'll get an update from you from time to time. Uh, good luck. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear in future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.